Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's reading comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Thank you, Anna, for reading our passage today. Um, kids are already, they know, they know the drill here. So if you're in Kingdom Kids, uh, the elementary, second through fifth grade, y'all are in here with us. Everyone else, we got preschool over here, K-1 over this way. Um, as always, I love to welcome our kids with us who are in service. Um, I hope that you guys feel the, the welcome, that you don't feel just like a tag-along. You're wanted here. You're needed here. It's good to fidget. It's good to make your noises. It, we're all better for it. Uh, we do have clipboards. Those aren't just coloring pages for the sake of coloring. They actually, Brandon has done a great job in actually providing an avenue where kids, you can take notes. You can, if anything is helpful, draw pictures, come show me. I need a good laugh at times. Um, but grateful you guys are in here. Um, man, band, thank you guys for serving us so faithfully. Um, I thought I was going to have to go to the cry room for a minute, but um, I have to come up here. So meet me in the cry room after. It'll be great. Um, if... You don't know me. My name is Rob. I have the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors here at the King's Church. And today we're going to continue our journey through volume one of Revelation. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn it on, scroll that way. Or if you want to go old school in the pew back in front of you, there is a Bible right there. It's black. It's beautiful. And we're going to be on page 966 uh, if you're doing that. If you have brought your Bible, I don't know what page it's on, but it's the last book. We're in chapter two. You'll find it. Um, yes, so a few things about my family. 
Uh, I always love sharing little stories. And one of the things about my family is we do the best we can not to strifle creativity. But maybe sometimes we should. For example, yesterday, our youngest Whitfield, you see him, he's the littlest Lurcy that's running around, and um, he informed me that he was going to make his own breakfast with five ingredients. I was nervous, scared. I was like, all right, buddy, what you got? He said, I'm going to need toast, I'm going to need jelly, I'm going to need peanut butter. I'm like, okay, here we go. He's going to need granola, and then to top it off, he's going to need almond crackers. I let him know that he is more than welcome to make that for himself. I'm going to just have toast and coffee. So um, excited, he gets the ingredients out, has the toast, gets a nice layer of jelly, to which then he sprinkles on some chocolate granola, and then he adds the topping of the almond crackers with a nice peanut butter spread on top. Now, I must say, his plate presentation was top-notch. So we sit down, and I'm trying not to uh, watch him too close so that he sees my expectation of what he, the Frankenstein breakfast that he's about to bite into. Um, but soon after that first bite, he chews, he is contemplative. He looks at me and says, I do not like this. <laughs> I was not shocked. I did not need to go Chef Ramsay on him and let him know that that was a foolish choice. But... Um, in that moment, and thinking back and reflecting, I think that this is a lot of what we see happening in the churches here in Asia and Revelation they find themselves in. They want to take a little religion. They want to spread a little emperor worship on there, because that's what's hot in the day. Maybe sprinkle some acts of immorality, and then voila, hot garbage. That's what they're feasting on. Ultimately, what they think will be a buffet that suits their purposes, that will further the gospel, is actually they're mixing together poison, and they're eating it, and it will ultimately lead to their destruction. But praise the Lord that we have a king who comes and provides warning, lets them know what's going on. And so I think that we see that really clear in our passage today. So let me give you my main idea. Kids, if you want to write this down, you can look at it later. Um, and then we'll pray. So Christ calls us to faithfully hold on to the truth that leads to eternal reward. Christ calls us to faithfully hold on to the truth that leads to eternal reward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you are a God who sees. That you're not a God who just wound up creation and sits back passively allowing things to unfold, but you are intimately involved in this world and in our lives. Jesus, thank you for dwelling among us. Thank you for ruling and reigning. Holy Spirit, thank you for continuing to bring to remembrance what Christ has said and taught and enabling us the faith to believe. And so God, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Okay, so in our passage today, I believe that there are two implicit questions that the risen Christ is asking, and those are going to serve as my two points for today. And they are, what are you holding on to, and where does it lead? What are you holding on to, and where does it lead? So let's, we're going to save verse 12 to the end. It'll make sense later. Just go with me. So starting in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now you might say, 
you had my attention, but now you have my interest. There's a lot going on in this section, a lot of where Satan's dwelling, his throne, and what interests you may not have been the same thing that interested me after reading and rereading this passage, because I couldn't move past from, I know where you dwell. Now, remember who's speaking. This is the risen Christ, and he's saying that I am aware of what you're dealing with. What you are going through right now is not uncommon, nor does it catch me by surprise. You see, as Pastor Ian pointed out in week one during uh, our initial kickoff into Revelation, we saw that Jesus' preferred place is among his churches, that as he is walking in the midst of the lampstands, which represent the churches, he's there. He's not only seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, he's also among his people, intimately familiar through it. And you see, that should first encourage us. Because if you think about, say you're going through a hardship, compare the reactions and the comfort you feel with someone from a distance who sends you a text, thoughts and prayers, Facebook posts, these types of things, versus someone who is next to you. Someone who is in the same community as you, who can wrap their arm around you and may not have the right words, but it's their presence that you feel. I personally felt this um, last year during Hurricane Ian. Um, My family and I, we went to Kissimmee to stay with my mom. She was very concerned about the storm and um, believed that it was going to hit here harder than it would uh, in Kissimmee, Uh, but that was actually not the case. We went to bed thinking everything was fine and woke up in the middle of the night to uh, water inside the house. Um, Her house flooded, so as we're walking around in shin-deep water uh, in her house trying to get all of our belongings that we had had and just weathering this storm, finally the waters recede and we walk outside and the whole neighborhood has gone through the same storm. They're experiencing the same thing. Now, the words and comfort of others reaching out, I don't want to lessen that. That is a good thing. But there is a uniqueness to someone who's intimately familiar because they have gone through the same thing as you're cutting away drywall, as you're hauling away the furniture that you saw floating away. And you see, friends, proximity to suffering matters. That's why Jesus didn't save us by proxy. He didn't just stay on his throne and send a representative who could save us. He incarnated among the poor and suffering. He tabernacled with his people. He did that in his incarnation. He did it in his resurrection. He's doing it now in his intercession as we are waiting permanently to dwell with him in our glorification. Jesus has never been apart from his people. The promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us has been issued, and he has proved it. And so that, first, is what we should grab a hold of. Gets our attention. Then we move to the lesser person, Satan, where his throne is said to be here in Pergamum. And uh, the verse also concludes that this is the place where Satan also dwells. Um, John here, as we have said, is a master author, that he's taking what's going on in their culture and he's exegeting it. He's looking at it through the lens of the gospel and how Christ's truth speaks truth into that moment and then also applies to us 
hundreds of years later. So Pergamum, if you're not familiar because you probably didn't study this week, but I did, um, it was a happening place in Asia, known for being a center of a wide array of religious temples and practices. Upon entering the city, you would see, um, you would encounter a massive altar to Zeus, the Greek god Zeus, and it would overarch the city almost like a throne. If you were to look at it, you can Google the images. There's some remnants still uh, left there and some artists' renderings of what it could look like at that point. Pergamum was also the home to the first temple ever built in honor of a living emperor, Augustus, in 29 BC. Moreover, there was a, another famous temple housed in Pergamum to the Greek god of healing, Asclepius. Let's all say that together. Asclepius. It took me many YouTube videos of a British person saying that word to figure out if I said it right. Don't even know. Um, so if anyone knows the King's English better than me, please holler at your boy later. Um, so Asclepius, um, you guys may have not heard his story or about him, but he has a symbol that you may recognize. We're going to show it on the screen maybe. There it is. It is a staff with a snake, a serpent, wrapped around it to which has, he was the Greek god of healing, to which many um, colleges and universities, their medical centers, their medical divisions of their schools, adopt this symbol. People from all over that region would come to Pergamum to have hope for healing. And so they were met with this Greek god who they prayed to, who they would go into his courts, and there would be serpents slithering around as you slept, hopefully to try to get that healing. Um, crazy stuff, but I think rather than this being the physical place where Satan dwells and where his physical throne is, I think what's being said is there is so much imagery to communicate the dwelling, the stronghold that this city had, that Satan had on this city. And we can see that through how he attacks, because we know that he is the enemy of God's people. <clears throat> he had attacks in a threefold pattern. He uses persecution, seduction, and deception. Now in these churches, and even in the New Testament and in our lives personally, we'll see one, maybe a combination of these, but in Pergamum there exists all three. And we can see that as our passage continues with persecution. It says, finishing out verse 13, uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so this early church is being commended for their faith. Extreme persecution is going on, all of which has culminated into this singular person that they, have, that they know about, Antipas. However, we are woefully under-resourced with who Antipas is and what, what his faith looked like and these things. However, um, there is a book. This is my, uh, my obligatory uh, book recommendation that I'm going to encourage you guys to read. And then at some point, someone's going to read one of these books I recommend, and then you're going to take me up on that offer to coffee or lunch, and we can talk about it. But there's a Christian historical fiction book called The Lost Letters of Pergamum. It kind of traces through uh, some of the letters that we have from Antipas to Theophilus that Luke wrote um, to with his Gospels, and then back and forth. And so it's a great book. It is fiction. I'll say that, but read it. We can talk about it. So 
One of the cool things about us not knowing too much about him is that we have to rely on just what the scriptures say. And how does the scripture speak of him? It says, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Now, this title given, my faithful witness, Jesus' faithful witness, is the same title that's given to Christ before he speaks as he's introduced in chapter 1. He's called God's faithful witness. Now, this word witness will later be adopted and translated as the word martyr. And so what we're told here is that Antipas held on to the name Christian, little Christ. And we can conclude that because he's given the same title of Jesus, the first true martyr for Christianity. That he gave his life, he showed what it means to hold fast to faith in the midst of extreme persecution and even death. And Antipas followed suit. But even with such extreme persecution, the church in Pergamum as well is commended that they did not see this and scatter. They held fast. No, I'm not talking about like these strongman competitions where you see their grip strength. No, I'm talking something greater than that. I'm talking an infant holding on to my beard. It is painful. I do not know how they're able to grip that so hard. But, I mean, that's what we're doing. We're a toddler who in the middle of the night is screaming as a nightmare and a parent goes to comfort them and they wrap their arms around them. They won't let go. Because in you is their source of strength. They're holding fast to the comfort, knowing that you can do something about it. That you can enter into their suffering. So church, we're invited to hold fast to Christ. And when we do that, the enemy has to change change his attack plan. And we're going to see that the seduction and deception into this next subplot. This is holding on to Christ and fill in the blank. So we see that Jesus has a few things against the church here. That there are some who hold on to the teachings of Balaam. I believe this is going to illustrate seduction, his attack of seduction. And the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I believe this is going to show deception. Now, on a, first off, on a linguistic level, we've heard and already seen that John is a masterful author. And if you look at what in Hebrew Balaam translates to and what in Greek Nicolaitans translate to, it means to conquer the people or destroyer of the people. So what he's revealing right now is you're holding on to something that will ultimately lead to your demise. And then he illustrates it in case people aren't getting it. Now the story of Balaam pulls from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, in Numbers 22 through 24. Now, Balaam uh, was sought after by the Moabite ruler, the king Balak, in those days. You see, God's people had been delivered from Egypt, and the fame of Yahweh and his protection and his um, battle for his people is spreading throughout the land. And word gets to Balak, and he's like, I got to do something about this. They're following this God I've never heard of before. If I can get someone to go to their God and curse them, then they don't stand a chance. Enter Balaam. So he, ent- he asked Balaam, hey, I need you to curse Israel for me. And Balaam's like, no problem, I got you. And so he goes to do that very thing, and 
is prevented by the Holy Spirit. Three times, he's confronted with his own desires to curse God's people, and yet can't. The Lord won't allow it because the Lord has a plan for this people, and they will not be conquered by this foreign tribe. And so what he does instead is decides, I can't curse them because Yahweh won't. I can only speak the words of Yahweh. But what we can do is we can get in through seduction. So instead, Balaam gives a plan of allowing the Moabite women to come and to um, lead the men into immorality and to seek after them and their false gods. And by their way of saying, yes, we're in this culture, and though God has given us this area and we are to be a different kind of people, we'll just take Jesus' aunt. We'll bring that in. And that has never worked well. And you see, as a result of that, 24,000 Israelites were killed for their unfaithfulness. What they were hoping to add to the words of God would lead to their destruction. Now, the history of Israel was replicating itself here in Pergamum. The sinful religious practices of their day were beginning to make their way into some believers. And if we look at the Nicolaitans in deception, we don't really know a ton about them, but I read one commentator summarized it as, the Nicolaitans encouraged cultural accommodations and secular living. They were going along with this teaching of as Rome conquered a place, there'd be exchange of gods and religious practices. Um, and so basically the Nicolaitans were saying, yeah, you know, you can, you can hold on to the name of Christ. That, that's fine. But, you know, if you want to reach these people, just, just adopt some of their practices that will give you that relational equity. That will allow you to seem um, open, open and receptive, affirming even. And as they were doing that, their hearts turned from one degree to another degree to another degree because they weren't able to see the source of their affections, what they were holding on to, and the trajectory that it was leading to. So under the guise of desiring to build relationships with others, they forsook their first love. Or you can think of it this way. <clears throat> uh, I helped out a little bit with FCA camp this week, and so I was reminded of youth group days. And um, the person who's interested in another person, but they're not a believer, and so you're like, well... So you participate in what is, uh, you know, called evangel dating or flirt to convert. Um, I'm just the messenger. Let the reader understand. Um, you know that you're playing with fire, but man, they're just so cute. If they could just, if I entered in a relationship, they're going to take what I say seriously. They're probably going to see that Jesus is really cool, and they're probably going to start following him. But friends... That's playing with fire. It never, it rarely ends well, Lord Sovereign. Um, however, when we go that route, when we start messing with the seduction, when we start compromising on the truths and letting a little in, adding more, you see your hand can only hold so much. So if you're trying to hold on to Christ and this practice and this practice and this practice, soon there will be no room and you have to figure out what's going to leave. And that's what confronts you in your sin. That's Jesus. And so he goes over here, and you're going to take everything that you think fulfills. Um, 
Students, I know that uh, school's out, but I'm going to give you a little math formula that maybe is going to help you with this. Try to distill it down. Real simple, real simple. Nothing, nothing difficult here. So Jesus plus nothing equals everything. However, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. When you look at what's in your hand, what are you holding on to? What's getting you through the suffering, the persecution? What are you believing about yourself, about the world? If it's Jesus and anything else, friends, that leads to destruction. If it's Jesus and nothing else, that's life. And that's what we're called to. You see, when you mix a little of the world with Christianity, you get a different flavor of Christianity. It's not taking Coke, adding a little grenadine, and getting cherry Coke. It is more like taking yellow paint and adding some blue paint to it. For those of you who don't know, you get green paint. You lose what you started with, and you lose what you added to it to a whole new thing. Early church fathers called that tertiary quid. You definitely didn't think you were going to hear that phrase, but I learned it in seminary, and this is the appropriate time to use it. So tertiary quid, a third thing, something that was neither what you started with or what you added to it. It's a new thing. And ultimately, what you're creating is the poison that you will ultimately take when you're trying to accommodate and to blend. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what's in your hands this morning? Are you holding fast to Christ? Or are you filling your hands with the seduction and deception of the enemy who overpromises and underdelivers every time? Are you drinking from the well of living water or are you adding poison to that cup? Follow the trajectory of what's in your hands. See where it leads and make that assessment. But if you have a problem with doing that, if you need help with that, that leads me to my second point. So where does it lead? And Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I have this against you, I'm out, but he gives us the ability to evaluate that trajectory. So we're going to couple verse 12 and then lead into uh, the end here. So to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now jump down to 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Excuse me. Now, this is why I wanted to save verse 12 to this picture, because what is going to unite them is this idea of what this sword represents. Thank you. So if you remember back in chapter 1, when Pastor Ian preached that, a lot of references back here because that's our foundation, um, he told us that there is a description of the risen Jesus. We have seven descriptors that fit into the seven churches. Each aspect of who Christ is is represented in a church to commend or to confront, sometimes both. And so here I was intrigued because of the sword imagery here. Um, If you realize it that in the beginning, in verse 12, it doesn't say where the two-edged sword is, but at the end, it does tell us that, that the sword is coming from his mouth. No, I thought that odd, but shouldn't it be in his hand? 
and why am I making a big deal about it? Well, first I think it's helpful to understand what the sword is, and that'll help us understand its location. Um, kids, if you want to draw a picture of a double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, please do so. Show it to me. It's probably terrifying, but exciting nonetheless. Maybe it will still be terrifying as we read what the sword actually is. So Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 tell us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, this is that sword that is proceeding out of the mouth. It's his words. If you don't believe me, let me further add 2 Timothy 3.16 that says all Scripture is breathed out. Again, its source is from the mouth of Christ himself and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training and righteousness. So if we don't understand how we are to figure out where what we're holding on to is leading, friends, the word of Christ is what gives us that ability to understand. But he's not the one who's wielding the sword yet. Who wields the sword is written actually by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Ephesian church where he's giving them their spiritual armor of God. And starting in verse 16 of chapter 6, it says, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All three members of the Trinity are used to describe the source of this sword. It's God's words spoken through Christ and confirmed by the Spirit. And this is the tool that we use to assess the purity of our worship, the object of our affection, and the standard of our religious practices. By the words of Christ, truth is established. By his, words, the word came, by his words, the world came into being. By his words, the hardest hearts are softened. By his word, the lost sheep finds the shepherd. And by his words, we know how to love, follow, and obey him. Friends, we don't have to forge our own sword or go looking for it. We've been handed it by the Savior himself. So when we're faced with the deception and lies and seductions of our world, we take the sword to it. Jesus has given us that. It, the sword acts as the scalpel in the hands of a master surgeon who is operating on someone who doesn't realize that inside of them are cancerous tumors that have to be removed. And so the sword, the scalpel, goes to work with such laser-like precision, missing the arteries, missing the organs that if punctured will cause our death, but cuts out to the smallest degree what will ultimately lead us to death. You see, that sword will wound, but friends, it also heals. We first have to be cut open. We first have to be exposed by the word, the areas that we need to give over to Christ. And after they are cut out, he sews us back up and he says, here, hold on to this. Fight against it. So we should be trained in how to wield that sword. And that's why spaces like this exist. That's why Sunday mornings we open up the scriptures to see how this two-edged sword pierces through our hearts. We have classes that go on on each semester that speak to how do we rightly read 
interpret, ask the right questions, and then apply it to our lives. Those happen on a semester basis, and we invite you to jump into those. We're in Acts right now. It's going to be fantastic. continues to be fantastic. And so if that's what helps us with fighting against the perse- or for the deception and the lies, the deception and the uh, intrigue from society, what, how do we handle persecution then? If that's the weapon that we use for that, we kind of skipped over persecution. Well, I believe the underlying current has been where that position of the sword is. You see, friends, we should assume that Jesus is wielding that sword in his right hand. That's what the scriptures have said over and over again. No left-hand hatred. We got a left-handed guy in Judges who delivers God's people in a really cool way. Read that. Come talk to me about it. It's fantastic. But if the sword is not wielded by the Savior, what's in his hand? So flip over, scroll over, look at Revelation 1, verses 16 and 20. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came the sharp two-edged sword. Working together, now to the end to see what this even means. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. As Revelation is peeling back our reality to see ultimate spiritual reality, we see that in Jesus' hand are the churches. He doesn't need to wield the sword because he has us firm in his grasp. So when you're facing persecution and you're wondering, what are you holding on to? You first need to remember you're being held on to by the Savior. His gaze is upon you. He is giving us what we need for life and godliness through his words. And we take that, clinging to him and fighting the battles that he gives us. And what's even better is that he gives us other people to do that with. Friends, <laughs> we've had a hard week, my family. And what, we have, what we've been continued to be met with are brothers and sisters in this body who pray for us, who mourn with us, who suffer with us. Friends, this is a beautiful blessing. It helps us remember that what we have here is amazing. That this is the Word made flesh. This is the practice of what we're reading. And it's a beautiful thing. So we need not fear death because Christ has gone forward. He has blazed that trail. He has provided a path for us that says, this is where I can lead you. That's why the Psalm 23 is so comforting in times of hardship. Because his rod and his staff, they comfort me. He leads us. And he is our ultimate reward. And friends, that's where when you hold on to Christ, that's where it ultimately leads. Now we see here in our passage that The reward for he who conquers, he who perseveres in this faith, who holds on to Christ and their identity in him. He rewards them in three ways. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Now on the surface, this is quite an interesting set of rewards. But I think each of these items is communicating something deeper and ultimately leads to the same thing. So, hidden manna. 
we should all be, if we're reading through the Bibles, familiar with the story of God delivering His people out of Egypt. They're wandering in the desert, and they need food. And so God feeds them with manna from heaven. Psalm 78 reminds us of this. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them, on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels, and he sent them food in abundance. You see, John is talking about an Old Testament reality and showing that this 40 years of sustenance was just a foretaste of what God's ultimate blessing would come. Within the provision of manna for God's sojourners in the wilderness was a hidden manna that would be given to God's sojourners in our wilderness and our wandering here as we await the arrival into the true land of promise. John is running with that picture, and he's removing that mystery. John would write in John, his gospel, chapter 6, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life, life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Friends, is this not what we ultimately strive for? Hope. We're starving for truth. We're starving and thirsting for something that satisfies us. So our culture is running to, to all kinds of things, searching down empty Empty streets that all lead to the same thing. But friends, through the narrow gate, we find life. This is really annoying. Can I use a microphone? <laughs> Are we good? Fantastic. <laughs> and friends, there's not a wait list for this. It's not like you go into a restaurant, you put your name and you hope you get a table in a certain amount of time. No, his resources are so great that there's room for each and every one of us at his table. There is enough. He doesn't have to or get more chefs in to cook because in him is abundance. He says the hidden manna is Christ himself. So friends, take and eat. Next is the white stone. Now, there's lots of interesting thoughts about what this white stone is, what it represents in that time and culture. And what I found over and over again are two, two things that I think will help us here. I'm going to quote Tom Schreiner. <clears throat> Those who triumphed in games, so like the Olympic games or in gladiatorial games, were given white stones for entry into celebratory banquets if you conquered, if you continued on. Such stones were also used in court cases to signify acquittal. So the connection here is those who overcome will enjoy the messianic banquet and stand clean before God forever. That stone represents a reality that awaits us. Through that invitation, that extension that he gives us, his righteousness, it's pure, it's white, it's unblemished, and they see that and we're let in. We, at the end, when the judge comes, we give them that white stone and he lets us into the heavenly banquet forever. 
Finally, we get to a new name. Now, I know that there are a number of growing families here, and new names are abounding. Maybe you need some help with that. Um, we have a lot of kids, and we went through a number of names. I had the pleasure of naming our lastborn, Whitfield, uh, though in talking, there was a name that I had thought of prior to that. Don't know what's happening. Dramatic pause. It's great. So before we landed on the name Whitfield, I had this great idea. What if we named him Gotham? We didn't use it. But I would encourage you to use it because, ladies, if you, in the middle of the night, that baby's screaming and crying, and you lean over to your husband and you say, Gotham needs you, <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. But even greater than that, this new name that we're given, we're told that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I don't think this is an Old Testament example of Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel, but what this is is a picture of Christ as he is coming on the white horse at the end of Revelation. This is Revelation 19. Here's the picture. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. You see, friends, all of these items that are our reward speak and lead to the same thing, the same person, and that's Jesus. That when we hold on to him, when we repent and trust him, we are given the name Little Christ, Christian. We get his name. And in his name, every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So we can stand assured of that gospel message. That he who conquers, perseveres to the end. What you get is greater than what this world has to offer. And that is Jesus. We get him. So the call for all the hearers is the same. Hold fast to Jesus. Are you tired in your walk with the Lord due to hardship? Be nourished by the hidden manna. Have you wavered in your devotion to him in starting to add other things to your faith or maybe even walking in the opposite direction? Let the words of Christ in the scriptures show you where you have erred, where you have sinned. Take his offer of repentance, knowing that that white stone represents your acquittal. You're judged innocent because he has been judged guilty. Receive that white stone that he offers. And friends, grow into that name that he gives all who repent. Christian. Let's pray. Father, God, Thank you for being among your people. Being among the poor and the suffering. Staying true to us when we are unfaithful to you. God, we don't deserve any ounce of grace. But God, that is who you are. Thank you for staying with us. Thank you for continuing to call us to repentance. And God, if there's anyone here 
who doesn't know you, who isn't holding fast. God, I pray that today that they would look for the hope that is in your son, Jesus, that spirit you would give them eyes to see, that you would implant the faith for them to reach out to that stone and receive it, knowing that they can have right fellowship with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.